0: Good morning, brothers and sisters. Our scripture reading today is from John chapter 1, verses 35 to 51. If you like to read it and touch the Bible in front of you in the Pew Bible, this would be on page 1615, 1,615. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who had heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. We have, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, and you will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. you will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man.
1: Morning. It's great to see all of you here on Memorial Day weekend. This is how we find out who the elect are. <laughs> it's not a mystery. I'm uh, Just gonna encourage you all, maybe you wanna keep your Bibles open today to page 1615. There's not gonna be any slides, and if you wanna follow along with the text, that's gonna help you keep up with me. Uh, a few announcements before we really get into the nitty gritty. First, if you don't already have it on your calendars, Mark down the 11th of June at 6.30 p.m. That's when we're gonna be having our next congregational meeting. And there are congregational meetings and there are congregational meetings, and this one is the latter, because you're gonna have the opportunity to vote on uh, both the budget approval and also on uh, the next slate of elders who are gonna serve your church at the highest level of executive leadership. Uh, I cannot communicate to you how important it is that you make a prayerful informed decision about the elders that you elect to lead this church. It is as or more important than it is to call a pastor. And here's why I can say that. Because when I attend an elder meeting, I can't vote. You know who gets to vote about the big decisions? The elders. They're the ones who are going to decide where the money goes. They're the ones who are going to decide whether we hire more staff. They're the ones who are going to be prayerfully considering the, the next level of where this church is going to be going in the next five years, 10 years, 15 years. So please do come out on the 11th of June at 6.30 p.m. You can find profiles for the elders, an overview of the budget on our webpage. Just go and click on next steps and you're going to have some links there. There's also going to be instructions for you to, to vote absentee if need be. Okay, enough said. How many else uh, among you really, really enjoyed worship today? I mean, it wasn't just me and Paul, right? Yeah? I just, I'm tempted to call the worship team back up here and just sing for the next hour. That was such a beautiful service. Um, the, <laughs> Elaine's with me. The, <laughs> do any of you ever wonder what's going on in times like that? I think the way that the Puritans talked about this is really, really helpful because we all know, if we're good Christians, that God is, quote, omnipresent, right? Always, everywhere, all the time. But the Puritans distinguished between God's omnipresence and God's manifest presence. And when they talked about God's manifest presence, they talk about that experience of the love of God being shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's given to us. And sometimes in worship, That's what happens and that's today. So if you're wondering what was going on, why you're feeling that way, what that sense of heaviness, what that sense of peace is, that's the manifest presence of God communicating himself to you through the Holy Spirit. Um, I have so many sermons I want to preach this morning but before I really go there, I I want to say one more plug for that event about the New Testament and hospitality that Pax mentioned. On the 10th of June, from 9.30 a.m. to 12 p.m. Mark this one in your calendars too because you have a rare opportunity to meet with a great Bible scholar who loves God, who loves the church, and who really walks the walk in his personal life that he teaches in the classroom. I've known Josh, Dr. Jip, since about 2008 when he, uh, he was first my professor before we studied in the same Ph.D. program together. And when Josh teaches about a topic like hospitality, like maybe it wouldn't occur to you that this is something that you should care about from a biblical or theological perspective. But let me me just tell you how much this has mattered to many of the people who are now in ministry that Josh has taught over the last 13 plus years. When I was talking with Adam Uh, soon to be like our installed pastor, Adam Darbone, who's gonna be here in a few weeks. And I was asking about what it was like for him in seminary. And I asked him this question, because I'm a former seminary teacher, this matters to me. I asked him, what was the best class you took in seminary? And he said, well, you know, I was at Trinity and there was this one class on hospitality that's just stuck with me my whole career. That was Josh's class. So you have an opportunity to do that with Josh on Saturday morning on the 10th of June. All right, Uh, let's pray and get into the Word. Lord God, I thank you that you're able to do exceedingly and abundantly above and beyond all we could ask or imagine. Uh, Lord, I look out at this congregation now, and I see so many needs, so many hungers, so many hurts, and I know that in my own power, I am insufficient to meet them all. But I, I remember what it was like for Jonathan and his armor bearer when they looked out when they looked out at the battlefield and they said, let's go up and see what God will do for us. Lord, I'm coming up now only because I'm confident in your desire to do good things for your people. So come and meet each person here, individually and collectively at their point of need. Say what I can't say. Teach what I can't teach. Lord, let your wisdom ring out in the midst of my folly. And we give you the glory in advance for every good thing that you say and do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. How many of you have been to a graduation in the last couple weeks? Yeah, I've been in and around a few graduations. It was a few weeks ago, Saturday morning, I was taking my kids downtown to hang out down by the university, and I forgot that it was commencement. (laughs) So it took a while while longer than you to park, right? And my little kids, my daughter's five, my son's about to be three, are walking around, they're like, they can't figure out why all these people are dressed like they're going to Hogwarts. Not that they know what Hogwarts is, but, I mean, they still see all the fancy robes, and they're very, very confused, so I'm trying to explain to them what this means. And then uh, a couple weeks later, my daughter, the five-year-old, has her preschool graduation, which was pretty sweet. Great to see all these little kids uh, singing songs and reading books and dancing around and generally having a great time. And then, uh, actually, just this last Friday, I had the privilege of speaking and praying at High Point Christian School's eighth grade commencement, and blessing that graduating class. I've been thinking a lot about graduation and school, more than usual, and I want you to have that image in your mind and think also about what it takes to take somebody like my daughter, the five-year-old, see her grow up, to train her up to the point where she graduates from eighth grade, to see her persevere on to the point where maybe one day she graduates from college, because that is the image that I submit to you you need to have in mind if you want to make sense of this bit of John chapter one. My single goal for you today is to encourage you as you follow Jesus so that you persevere up until that moment of graduation. And in order to encourage you along the way, I want to point out to you from this text two stumbling blocks, maybe not the only stumbling blocks, but two stumbling blocks that often trip us up as we're on our way towards our own graduations, our own sort of milestone markers in our discipleship and our walk of faith. Every time you do sign up for school, you have some sense of what's required of you. No engineer ever gets to class and is surprised that they're asked to do math, right? Nobody who's training to be an English teacher thinks it's weird that their professor at some point asks them to read Moby Dick. No graduate student in the history of the world was ever shocked that they went between two and five years working 90 hour plus weeks with no social life. It's just you count the cost when you embark on the journey, right? It's like that for discipleship. So. I'm going to spend a chunk of time now just talking about the good, the great good of the call of Christian discipleship and why we should be excited about it. But then I want to focus on these two obstacles that sometimes impede us. First, I've struggled for the word for this, but I think you could just call it stagnation. Stagnation. It gets in our way. It weighs us down, makes us heavy. I'll explain more when I get there. And the second is pride. The way that pride will trip us up and keep us from growing in grace and godliness. Okay, so point one, the promise of discipleship. The goal of salvation, life in God. Uh, when I was in college, I was a Classics major. I majored in Greek and Latin, and I, I can see in your faces you're already asking yourselves the question that just about everybody asked me when they found out that I was a Greek major. What are you going to do with that? Right? What are you going to do with that? Uh, warning, I wish I'd listened. That's how God sneaks you into ministry. Um, but ask yourself the bigger question behind, what are you going to do with that? The bigger question behind that question is, why do we educate people to begin with? And these days, what are you going to do with that is often the best question we have, because for us, education, formation, studentship is mostly about preparing people to like, thrive economically. For most of human history, that wasn't the goal. For most of human history, we gave an answer other than economics for why we're educating people. We wanted people to thrive in our society, to be contributing members of our society, and so we often talked mostly in political terms. This is especially the case when education was kind of a luxury good that often just went to the upper crust folks. So if you were in ancient Greece and Rome, education prepared you to, to serve at the highest levels of government, and even early in the history of American education, I mean, you find educational theorists like a guy named John Dewey writing books called, quote, Democracy and Education, where people are making the case that education is necessary for the broad populace because that's what it takes to sustain a democratic society. Now, for Christians, the reason that we are disciples, and remember that disciples is just fancy talk for students of Jesus, is because we are trying to follow Jesus and so to attain eternal life. The goal, the why of our discipleship is salvation, is eternal life. Now, now that I'm gonna to turn to the text itself, I've just gotta warn you. I've said this the last time I preached, when John uses language, a lot of times he's a little bit cryptic, a lot of times he's saying two things at once. So hang with me here because this first exchange between Jesus, the first words that Jesus speaks in the Gospel of John mean at least two things at once. All right, buckle up, you've been warned. If you check out verse 38, the first disciples who have originally been John the Baptist disciples, they come to Jesus and they say, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And the NIV doesn't totally catch all the nuance here because that verb staying is a really important verb throughout the gospel of John. If you were to see the same verb translated in John chapter 15, you would probably translate it this way. Where do you abide? Same Greek verb. So remember, remember the prologue to John where we talked about what life means, and we talked about how what life means is to come to be in Jesus. How Jesus is the point of contact between us and and God so that the power that God is can flow into us and sustain us unto eternal life. And in John chapter 15, John uses this image of the vine and the branches. And what abiding means there is to be a branch that's grafted into the vine so that the life that's in the vine flows into us, the branches, and sustains them. So when the disciples look at Jesus for this very first encounter with him, they've never spoken to him before and ask where do you abide? I've got to imagine that Jesus just looks back at them and says, oh, you have no idea. You don't even know what you're asking. You're not even equipped to understand the answer to the question that you're, answer- that you're asking yet. I mean, where does Jesus abide? What he says in chapter 15 is that if you, the disciples, keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Where does Jesus abide? In the Father's love, and where does He invite the disciples to abide? In His love. John 15, 4, abide in me and I in you. Where does Jesus abide? That doesn't just mean, where are you spending the night tonight, Jesus? Can we hang out with you? That means that Jesus abides in the Father, and He's inviting us, the disciples, to come and abide in Him so that we also can have that life with Him and the Father, That's what's going on here in verse 38. It's a question about who are you really Jesus? And Jesus is gonna be continually leading, guiding, coaching, teaching, challenging, provoking the disciples until finally they get to the place by the end of the gospel where he can say things directly to them about who he really is and where he really abides and what it actually means. Okay, so now let's turn to Jesus' answer to the question. Jesus' answer to the question, where do you abide is, is not, oh, I can't tell you that. That's way above your pay grade. It's, come and you will see. Come and you'll see. This, in one sentence, is the great goal of salvation. The goal of our salvation could be reduced to this, seeing God as God is in Himself, by the power of God abiding in us. Seeing is a massive theme for John. If you were to swip, uh, like switch a few pages forward in chapter 9, this is what Jesus says about his mission. John 9, 39, for judgment I have come into the world so that the blind will see and that, so that those who see will become blind. And later in chapter 12, he says that the one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. So when he says, come and you'll see, he's really inviting you to see him for who he is in his divinity, in his nature, in his full power. The disciples don't realize it, but Jesus has just given them an absolutely radical, astonishing, mind-breaking promise. Think back to the Old Testament and the idea of seeing God in the Old Testament. Think back to the book of Exodus in particular. This is what uh, God says to Moses in the book of Exodus. When Moses is going up on Mount Sinai, he gets up to the top, right? and then God sends him right back down. He says, you need to go down and warn the people not to break through to the mountain to look on God so that many of them die. If you get too close to the mountain and you try to look on God, Israel, you will die. And a few chapters later, in chapter 33, when Moses himself is on the mountain, and what does he ask of God? Show me your glory. Show me your glory. And God's response is that he's going to hide him in the cleft of the rock, and he's going to pass by, and all his glory is going to go before him. But he says, you cannot see my face, for no one, no human being can see my face and live. And Jesus says, come and you'll see. Remember what Jesus says in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Not convinced yet, consider what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now we see your reflection in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. The call of the disciple is the call to see God, which means necessarily that at some, at some level we have to become more than just human beings because we are called to see the God who says that if you see me, you will die. This is the call that Jesus is issuing to his disciples when he says, come and you'll see. Do they understand that? Probably not, not right away. Okay, so just to sum up, when Jesus says anything in John, he usually means at least two things. And here, he, when he says something like, come and see me, he's definitely inviting them to come and like, hang out with him, have dinner with him, talk with him. They do go and they do see where Jesus is spending the night. But on the other hand, come and you will see means if you stick with me long enough, you'll really see where I abide, in the Father, because I will abide in you. Now, that all sounds pretty great. That is a call to discipleship that I would personally sign up for. But this is where the text should give us some pause, because there's at least two obstacles that we're going to have to overcome if we want to persevere in that journey of discipleship, where we go from asking a question like, where do you abide, to the point where Jesus has walked with us long enough and taught us intently enough that we're actually equipped to receive His Word and His teaching and become the kind of people who can understand the question to begin with. These aren't the only two obstacles to, like, growing in salvation, but they're two significant ones. They trip us up. I would say that the first one, stagnation, and then the second one, pride. Let's start with stagnation. The fact of the matter is, is that Jesus is always challenging us to grow by giving us truth that's just a little more intense, a little more complicated, a little more difficult than what we were already at and what we're comfortable with. Um for those of you who are no longer in school if you think back to school can you remember the subject that was just your nightmare like for me it was math i was terrible at math really actually when i think back on it now i realize i wasn't terrible at math what i was terrible at was working hard because A lot of other subjects, at least the way that they were taught in my school, I didn't have to work that hard at them. I was just I was either good at them naturally, or they were taught in such a way that they didn't really challenge me. So when I got into math class and I actually had to work at it, I thought something was wrong, and I thought I just uh, this isn't for me. Now I wish I'd worked harder. I know now what I missed out on. I, I lost something super valuable. And just think about the way that the disciples grow in their knowledge of truth between their first meeting with Jesus and then Jesus' Jesus's final words to Nathanael. This is, this is how Jesus' interaction with the disciples start. First off, the two disciples at the beginning are already disciples of somebody else. They're disciples of John, right? They're disciples of John the Baptist, and that's why they even recognize Jesus when he comes is because Je- John the Baptist keeps pointing at this guy and saying he's important. He's important. So when they go to talk to him the first time, John says, behold the Lamb of God. Now that's, that's kind of amazing and cryptic, and that's, that's foreshadowing what's going to happen at the end of the book when Jesus suffers as like the Passover lamb. But the disciples don't seem to get that. They just go to Jesus, and they don't say, what's up with this Lamb of God thing? They say, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? They think of him as a teacher, as a rabbi, who's the same sort of thing as John the Baptist. Maybe an upgrade. Maybe it's like going from middle school to high school or high school to college, but at the end of the day, they treat him like he's just another teacher. Okay, that lasts about one night. After spending time with Jesus, after getting some sense of who he really is, they come out of that conversation and they conclude, this guy is not just a teacher, this guy has got to be the Messiah. Right? So they're going and they're talking to guys like Philip and Nathaniel. They're saying, we, like, we, we found the Messiah. We found the one that Moses and the prophets were writing about. That's all well and good. And is it true? Is Jesus a teacher? Yes. Is Jesus a Messiah? The Messiah? The anointed one? Yes. But what do they think that means? What do they think that really means? After Jesus has his back and forth with Nathanael, where he tells him that he saw him under the fig tree even before Nathanael saw him, and Nathanael says, You are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. And what does Jesus respond? He doesn't say, Yes, bingo, you've got it. Even though Nathanael is right, what he says is, You think that's great. Wait till you see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, what's going on here with this language, Son of God, Son of Man? If you've read your New Testament for a while, you know that those are phrases that often get used to describe Jesus, right? And I'm going to try not to nerd out too hard here, but these these phrases are common enough that you should have some sense of what they mean and how they relate to each other. Uh, And it's really important that you understand them because generally speaking, they mean the opposite of what you would naturally think they would mean. You hear a phrase like, son of God, and you think to yourself, that means that Jesus is divine, if he's God's son, right? And you hear a phrase like, son of man, and you think, well, that would mean that Jesus is a human being, right? He's the son of another human being. Invert that, and then you've got it. If you were to look back at Second uh, Samuel chapter 7, like th- when uh, God is anointing David as king over Israel and giving him promises for his own reign, and giving him promises for what's gonna come after him and his line, this is what he says in verses 11 to 14. I'm quoting, the Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, here's the kicker, verse 14. I will be his father, and he will be my son. So, to be God's son means to be David's biological heir. It means that you sit in the house in the line of David, and you're the one who should ascend to the throne of Israel. So, when Nathanael looks at Jesus and says, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel… What he means is, you're David's descendant. You're the one we've been waiting for to be our human political ruler. Is he right? Yes, 100%. But Jesus says, I'm not just the Son of God. I'm also the son of man. So if you were going to look at another Old Testament text, Daniel chapter 7, this is a super important passage for the writers of the New Testament when they're trying to figure out how to talk about Jesus, who he is, what it means that God has come in Jesus. They talk about this figure who appears in Daniel chapter 7, and I'm just going to give you a bit of verses 13 and 14. Quoting again, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom is one that shall not be destroyed. This one, like a son of man, isn't just David's biological offspring. He's someone who comes with the clouds of heaven. There's something divine about this guy. And the kingdom that he receives isn't just the throne of David. It's an everlasting dominion over everything. All right, so this isn't really the only time that Jesus is going to push his disciples and their understanding of him and who he is. But this is the thing that you have to see in this text, is this progression of understanding. The disciples, when they come to Jesus the first time, they think they know who he is. He's a teacher like John. And then they find out that he's the Messiah. And then they find out that their understanding of Messiah wasn't actually sufficient and then, the, like, what does Nathaniel even think at that point? I'm gonna see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, like, we don't even know what he thinks. And Jesus isn't gonna stop there. I mean, like, throughout the gospel, this is gonna happen again and again and again, where he's gonna look at his disciples and say things that they have got to think is just absolutely screwy. If you were to flip ahead to chapter six, this is the big one in the book, Flip ahead to chapter 6, where Jesus looks at everybody and says, I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. And by the way, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. You want to be saved? You want to have eternal life? Eat my flesh and drink my blood. How do you think the crowd reacted to that one? I mean, this is right after he's fed 5,000 people, right? So there's a bunch of people there. They're all excited about who this guy is. And then he looks at them and says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood now. well, I mean, we know how they react. Almost everybody leaves, right? And because we're reading the Bible and because we're pious Bible readers, we think, oh, what idiots. What did they miss out on? Put yourself there honestly. Some guy who's been walking around in the wilderness and hasn't showered in three months looks at you and says, eat my flesh and drink my blood. What do you do What does it take as a disciple to actually persevere when Jesus looks you in the eye and says something that you think is just beyond the pale? Well, I can give you a couple options. This is how we often react. A lot of us, especially folks who worship in churches like ours, love the principle of holding fast to the truth, refusing to buckle under pressure, And that's a great thing to an extent, right? Sometimes in our lives, in our walk of faith, we are just going to have to, having done all, stand and refuse to be subject to lies or error. But there's a risk involved in that posture. It's not the only posture that Christians need to adopt because if we cling to a principle too tightly, if we cling to the truth that we already know, if we're so busy defending what's already established, we will miss it when Jesus tries to add to what we know. If you get too comfortable as a math student with algebra and you never let your teacher slash Jesus lead you into geometry and from geometry into statistics or trig or calc, then you haven't really learned math. And if as a disciple you are so settled with the, the foundational and fundamental truths and you think that the security of your faith rests in your ability to cling onto those things for dear life, you will miss the fullness of discipleship. You cannot just hold fast. You have to hold fast with one hand and leave the other hand wide open for more. Jesus isn't done teaching us until we become the kind of creatures who can look at God and not die. So until that's me and until that's you, work with the assumption that Jesus has more for you. I think about like what Paul said when in 2 Corinthians, he talks about ascending into the third heaven and encountering things that were so wonderful he just, he as a human being, couldn't even express them. I think about one of the great theologians in the history of the church, Thomas Aquinas, I mean, probably no theologian in the last thousand years has impacted the church the way Thomas did. And at a certain point towards the end of his life, he was, he was working on his masterpiece, a little, a little distillation of Christian doctrine called the Summa Theologica. But then one day he has an encounter with God that's so profound that after writing thousands and thousands and thousands of pages over years and years and years and years, and years he just goes quiet. He just stops. He says, everything I've ever seen is like straw compared to this. There is more for you. If there is more for Paul, if there is more for Aquinas, there is more for you. Okay, that's option one. Don't hold too fast. A second option might be what a lot of folks today are calling, quote, deconstruction. A lot of times, a lot of times, when Christians are growing up, when Jesus is presenting them with new and more challenging and sometimes even more offensive truth, Christians start to feel like they must be bad people. They start to feel like it's not safe to ask those questions, like they can't actually go deeper or they're going to lose the Jesus that they've had. What we don't realize is oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes it's God who is poking us with those questions. What do you really think about the Bible? What do you really think about the virgin birth? What do you really think about the work of the Holy Spirit? And so on because he's poking you to grow up. He's challenging you in the same way that Jesus is challenging Nathanael. Now, I do wanna be, be careful here. Not every question that we hear in our ears about the faith is God provoking us to grow up. There is a difference between the enemy coming to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and saying, did God really say, and that other kind of question that's often a little bit more open-ended and that makes us unsettled and that gives us room to grow and explore and You see what I'm getting at here? But this is what I do want you to hear, especially if you're in the room today and you're feeling like your faith is maybe a little bit shaky because you have some unanswered questions. Those unanswered questions do not make you a bad Christian. Those unanswered questions are probably a sign that God in heaven is looking at you the way Paul looked at the Corinthians and saying, okay, you're done with milk. You're ready for some more solid food. And I'm gonna poke this person with these questions to encourage them to explore and seek my face and find me and grow. Having your ideas, your preconceptions, having them challenged is an inevitable part of being Jesus' disciple. It happens to every one of us. And without it, we will never grow up to be the kind of Christians who can look at God in the face and not die. So don't be afraid. And this is the promise to you. This is the reason why at the end of the day I would say you really shouldn't be afraid. Is because Jesus says, Come and you will see. That's a promise from God. Come and you'll see. You'll see not because you're intelligent. You won't see not because you're a hard worker. You will see not because you're a natural at this discipleship thing. You will see because your teacher is the one who knows that he can bring you through to completion. The Messiah, God, Son of God and Son of Man will abide in you as he abides in the Father. If only God can see God, then he is the only God who will give you that life in yourself so that you can seek and find. So don't quit. It's a normal part of the Christian life to be baffled by the mystery of God. But it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, and it's the glory of kings to seek it out and make it known. That's for you. So to restate, if you are Jesus' disciple, prepare yourself for him to challenge you. It is inevitable until you have grown up to be the kind of Christian who can look God in the face and not die, he is going to keep challenging you and provoking you with thoughts, with ideas, with concepts, with truths that at the first glance are going to seem to you like they are as crazy as somebody looking you in the eye and saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood. Prepare now for that. But it's great news when that happens, because he's leading you on to eternal life. Don't stagnate. Persevere. All right, point three. Jesus brings us truth from places we'd really, really rather he wouldn't. I know that some of us in this room are either still applying to schools right now, or are thinking about applying to schools within the next year. Uh, man, I, I empathize with that experience so deeply. Some people in my family are currently applying to schools, and frankly, I've applied just to way too many of them. So, I remember what it was like when I was applying to seminaries. Um, I knew where I wanted to go, and I knew where I didn't want to go. I grew up in a super conservative Pentecostal denomination in the Midwest. But I knew that I wanted to do a Ph.D. in New Testament Studies. And if you want to do a Ph.D. in New Testament Studies, that already tells you, like, the list of schools that you can apply to for your master's degree. Because there are some schools that are just going to be feeder programs for those for those good Ph.D. programs. And boy, I wanted to go to Duke for my Ph.D. or I wanted to go to Notre Dame for my Ph.D. Those are the places with the professors I was most excited about and the people I wanted to work with. So because I'm thinking I want to go to Duke or I want to go to Notre Dame, I ask myself, okay, where, for the students who are at those programs, where did they do their master's degrees? I mean, a lot of them went to Duke and Notre Dame. They, they tend to take their own students. So I applied and I really, really, really wanted to go there. But long story short, in the course of applying, God made it so embarrassingly abundantly clear to me that he was sending me to a school I had never heard of called Emory University. I mean, unless you're like a medical student or unless you have a master's of business business administration, you've probably never even heard of Emory University in this room. But they have a great New Testament PhD program. And I just, I was like, no, 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 no. I sat down with the professor at Duke that I wanted to work with. His name's Richard Hayes, great man. And Richard looked me in the eye and said, I would love to work with you, but I'm going to be on sabbatical next year, which means that I can't write you a letter of recommendation to get you into a PhD program. You should go to Emory. And I thought, cool story, bro. No, no, I don't think so. But I walked out of there and I went home, and as my parents and I prayed about it, it just became clear. Emory. So I went out of obedience, and it changed my life. I mean, it was a hyper-liberal, seminary in the deep south, and that's where God met me in powerful ways. I mean, shock horror. God used mainline Christians to revitalize my faith. It's like, bring me my clutching pearls. What? How? That's not supposed to happen. But being in Atlanta changed my view of race in the church. It changed my view of the relationship between evangelicals and other Christian traditions. It pushed me to become the best interpreter of the Bible that I could have possibly become. And I know what I would have missed if I had said no to God when He told me to go to Amory. That's the emotional experience that I think Nathaniel had when he said, can anything good come from Nazareth? Can anything good really come from Nazareth? It's, it's not 100% clear why he doesn't like Nazareth. It's likely that it's because it's way to the north in Galilee, which, you know, from the time of Isaiah on through the time of Jesus, good Israelites and Jews were the minority population there. So it's probably the way, like, someone in New York would feel if the next president were from New Jersey, or the way that someone in the deep south would feel if someone from Mississippi came to their front door or the way that Minnesotans would feel if somebody from Iowa was elected their next governor. Can anything good come from there? The the trick is, that's exactly God's point. This is exactly God's point. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wisdom of the wise. He will directly confront our pride In order to get us to listen to Him. A great pastor of mine used to put it this way, God will offend your mind in order to reveal your heart. He will absolutely do it. If he sniffs out a whiff of pride in there, the second you decide that God cannot use someone or something, watch out because that's where the Holy Spirit is going to start speaking to you from. What is your Nazareth? What is your Nazareth? Don't predetermine the ways you'll let God speak to you. So like charismatic folks, don't lean so hard on prophecy, dreams, and visions that a cessationist Presbyterian couldn't preach the Word of God to you and you hear the Holy Spirit addressing you in the preaching of the Word. Evangelical folks, lean on your Bibles. Absolutely. But the next time somebody comes up to you and says, I've been praying for you and I think God has this to say to you, Swallow hard, listen, write it down, and then go pray about it. But also consider, would you let God speak to you from a church culture that you've never been, like, affiliated with? You ever attended, like, a worship service at a black-majority church? Ever attended Mass and actually listened to the homily, listened to the words of the liturgy? Ever attend, like, a great liturgy in an Orthodox church? Where two or more are gathered in Jesus' name, He's there. Do we agree with all these other Christian traditions totally, all the way down the line? No. Does Jesus care? Probably not as much as we do, because he loves his people and he will speak to them because he is bringing all of us towards completion and salvation. Um, I, I think a lot these days about a, a really tough text from the book of Numbers. Remember the book in the book of Numbers where the whole congregation is just dying of thirst and then Moses goes and he hits the rock. Like God said, go speak to the rock, but Moses goes and he hits the rock once, and nothing happens. And then Moses hits the rock again, and water comes out. Right? Moses had it wrong. A lot of times, leaders in the church have it wrong. I am terrified of one day standing before God and having him look at me and saying, you missed it, And so I try to lead from a place of humility. But here's the good news, is that even when leaders and teachers in the church get it wrong, if God's people are still thirsty, God is going to provide them with water. Don't close yourself off to the water that God will provide just because some human teachers have got it wrong. What's your Nazareth? So, just to conclude, avoid the pitfalls of stagnation, and pride. Do not get so comfortable with where you are that you will not let God push you and provoke you and grow you because you are never done. You are never done growing. If God is infinite, then there is never a point at which you have achieved perfection in God because you are always walking one step closer, one step closer, one step closer to the mystery that He is. That's great news. That's why heaven will never be boring. You can never exhaust God. You can only draw closer and closer and closer forever because He has no center and He has no border. There is only ever more. And to the degree that you are growing now as a disciple, you are taking one step into more and more and more and more for all eternity. You are already experiencing the joy of your salvation when you come to know Him a little more, a little farther, a little deeper. But beware pride. Knowledge puffs up. The more you grow, the deeper you go in God, the more tempted you will be by pride. The more certain you will be that you and the people around you have what you need, and so you'll close yourself off to the avenues in which God decides he wants to address you and challenge you and provoke you. Retain that humility that says, God, I will hear your voice from everywhere. And you don't need to freak out about that because this this is why one spiritual gift is the discernment of spirits. The spirit in you will recognize and respond when the spirit of God is addressing you from the outside. So trust in him. And the end goal of all of this is that you will see God, that Jesus will abide in you, and that you will abide in God, and you'll enter into that never-ending positive feedback loop of life that carries on for all eternity. If you're worried about falling prey to these weaknesses at this point, maybe you even feel them in yourself, maybe you do feel like your faith is, quote, deconstructing, and you don't know what to do about it, this is one where you can relax and trust in God because Jesus is the one who looks at you and says, come and see. He's the one who has the power, the ability, the strength to uphold you and to bring you all the way. You won't find truth in life because you're good. You will arrive at eternal life because He is able to uphold you and keep you from falling. And just a final word of encouragement. For any of you in the room today who feel just like a failure as a Christian, who really are unhappy with yourself for one reason or another, maybe you're struggling with a besetting sin, Maybe you're feeling wishy-washy. Maybe just this last week you had an opportunity at evangelism and whiffed at it. I don't know what's going on. But it's, it's fairly common for a lot of Christians when they compare themselves to the standard of Christ and to the standards of the great saints that they've seen around them to feel like, oh my gosh, I am a worm. This text has an awesome lesson for how Jesus sees you. Remember what Jesus says to Nathanael the first time he looks at him. Behold, an Israelite in whom there's nothing false. When Jesus looks at you and invites you to discipleship, he's not doing it because he's a masochist who likes taking something run down and beaten up and ugly and and turning it into something passable. He's not just trying to give himself a challenge because he thinks that you and I are in rough shape. He's not doing it because he's obligated. He is under no obligation to call us at all. He's doing it because when he looks at us, he sees it good that excites him. And that is what you should see when you look in the mirror. When you look in the mirror, you should see God's creation invited by God to share in God's life because He delights in you. So the next time that voice comes in your head, telling you how worthless and rundown you are, I would recommend that you quote right back to that voice in your head, behold an Israelite. Will you join me in prayer? God, I thank you for the gift of your word. I thank you that, that, Lord, you are the one that Moses and the prophets wrote about and the apostles wrote about. I I thank you that even now, every time we open the Bible and we study it, we hear your voice speaking to us from heaven to earth. I thank you that, Lord, you're also the one who gives us ears to hear, Lord, what's beyond us. What we couldn't receive for ourselves, you, you make known to us. Lord, I pray that today, you would, uh, you would encourage us. You would help us to remember that you're our great and faithful high priest who's able to sympathize with our weaknesses and who will help us in our time of need so that we won't stagnate or grow comfortable along the way so that we won't fall short of entering into your rest. And I pray also uh, that your Holy Spirit would convict us where we're in pride and would replace it with hunger and desire to hear from you, to learn from you what you have to say to us. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening.